ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead and show us what you would want us to see from this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 32, starting at verse 1. After these things and the establishment thereof, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and that he was proposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. So that they, so there was gathered much people together who stopped up all, all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? Also he strengthened himself and built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers and another wall without and, re, and repaired Milo the city of da- in the city of David and made darts and shields in abundance and he set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the streets in the street of the gate of the city and spoke comfortably to them saying be strong and courageous and be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria of the king of Assyria nor for the multitude that is with him for there be more with us than with him with him is the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battle. And the people rested themselves in the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So we're going to stop here. We're going to start looking and tearing this apart a little bit. After these things, what things? The revival. The revival we've been spending two chapters on, where he opens up the temple, reestablishes temple worship and sacrifice. They have their two-week-long celebration of Passover. After all of this establishing of God and the establishing of his kingdom, Sennacherib shows up. Now, if you don't know the name Sennacherib, he's the king of Assyria. He's like the third, third king, great king of Assyria. Assyria is the nation that has conquered the northern kingdom by this time. And now he turns his eyes on Judah and says, okay, I conquered the northern kingdom. I'm, I'm now ready to take this southern kingdom, or as he would have said, Judah. And so he sets his eyes on it, and he starts working his way throughout the land of Judah. And you know, it's, apparently it takes him quite a while to do this, because we look at this, and it says, Hezekiah saw this, and it was coming, and he per- that he proposed to fight. And in verse 3 it says, He took counsel with his princes and his mighty men and stopped up the waters of the fountains that were without the city, and they did help him. So his first thing that he did, and this is quite amazing, he, you can see that he has a great fear of Sennacherib and the Assyrians because he stops up all the wells. He goes out and he just destroys the wells. And his reasoning is, we're not going to make it easy for him when he gets here. So there is some fear. Nobody has defeated Sennacherib at this point in time. He is conquering everything. He is building the Assyrian Empire. He, when he goes to battle, he wins. All right. So all of this is going on and he's looking and saying, OK, he's coming. He's coming to take, you know, to fight with me. Yeah, I'm going to make things difficult for him. And he gets he wipes out all the fountains, and the, the wells. Uh, kind of a smart move on one side. But, it, you know, if Sennacherib doesn't come, he's got to redig the, redig the wells. But at least he deprives them of water in the, in the interim. Uh, 
And then the princes helped him, and then he gathered much people together and stopped up all the fountains and brook and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? So this would have been the Kidron, the brook of Kidron, most likely, even though it doesn't say it, because that's the major one by, by Jerusalem. So he stops it up. He makes the water stop into Jerusalem uh, so that he has water. But Sennacherib is not going to have water. So he's making good plans. He says, I've got, some, I've got to make sure I'm taking care of my people. And it's a great example for us. We're going to find that he depends upon God for the victory and the ultimate victory. But he does do all that he can do in preparation. And I really do believe that God expects us. If there's things that we can do, he expects us to go out and do the things that we can do. But when we get tested beyond what we can handle, then we trust him. Uh, you know, if, if you're without a job and you're praying for a job, then you need to get off your butt and go put in applications. You know, if you don't, then God is not just going to drop a, lap in, a, a, a job into your lap. All right? Um, there's things you've got to do to, that, that you can do. There comes a point where you say, okay, God, I've done all that I can do. Now I need you. And this is where uh, Hezekiah is going to get. God, I have prepared all, and now it's yours. And we're going to see the response that God gives to Hezekiah. All right. Um, then after stopping the water, he strengthened himself and built up the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers. So apparently Jerusalem had some broken down walls, so he fixed the walls. And he took them up to the tide of the tower, so maybe, maybe they were only half high or something. Because he's been at safety all this time, and he hasn't been worried. And now... The enemy's coming, and he's strengthening everything that he can do. And he repaired Milo in the city of David, which was a, uh, a weapons, weapons city. And he made darts or missiles that were thrown and shields in abundance. And these darts or, or javelins, uh, arrows, whatever, whatever kind of missiles they were, that's very important when you're going to be besieged in a city. You need something that can hit the enemy without having to throw swords at them, which isn't going to work very well. Throwing a sword isn't going to work very well. So he makes javelins, arrows, probably slings for the uh, stones for the slings. He's doing all kinds of things that they can hit the enemy and not have to leave the city. And he says he makes them in abundance. So he is preparing himself for a battle. He's preparing for a siege. And this is, we've talked about this in several times. In that day and age, these walled cities, people would go into them and to be protected, and the enemy would just surround the city and starve them out for all practical purposes. They'd just sit out, they'd harass them a little bit, but they just basically encircled the city and said, okay, you can sit in there. You know, and sometimes they would sit, you know, history shows that sometimes they would sit out there for a year or two just circling a major city until they got so hungry that they surrendered or did something desperate and charged out to try to, to break the siege. Um, and so this is happening to him. They're setting it up. He appoints captains. And then he gathers all the people together in the city and he goes to talk to them. And this is what's really good. His first statement is, be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed of the king of Assyria, 
nor the multitude that is with him. And I'm going to stop there. This is his statement. Don't be afraid of them or the whole crowd that he has. Later on, we're going to, in, a, in another book, we find out that he only has 185,000 men with him. Just a, just a small number to, to surround the city. Uh, and it doesn't cover that in this, in this particular book, but in, the, in, King, in Kings and in Isaiah, it tells us 185,000 soldiers that Sennacherib brings to besiege Jerusalem. That's a little bit of an army. All right? But he's telling the people, do not be afraid. Be courageous. And you know, I, where did he get that a whole idea from? Well, basically from the scriptures, because over and over again, God told his people, be strong, be courageous, do not be dismayed. We see it in Numbers 13, verse 20, uh, again in Deuteronomy 31, 6. We see it several times in Joshua. God was always telling Joshua, be strong and courageous. Uh, told him first time in, in, in chapter 1, verse 6, and told him again in, in chapter 10, 25, and 23, 6, uh, Ezra 10, 4, Ezra told the people, be strong and courageous. Uh, this is God's statement to us. Be strong and courageous. Do not be bothered by what you see. And we could throw in many other examples. We could throw in the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, not bowing before the idol, even though God didn't tell them directly they were saying we're going to be strong and courageous because our god can deliver us but even if he doesn't we're still going to serve him uh we saw it with jo uh, joseph not not surrendering to the sins and stuff that he had all through scriptures we see the men of god and the women of god being strong and courageous uh we look at an, an esther you know who's saying i need to save my people you know, having to go in to see King Xerxes when she hadn't been called. And if he didn't hold out his scepter to her, she would have been executed. And she had to be strong and courageous to go in and follow what was told to her to do. And God is asking us so many things to just be strong and courageous. And a lot of times people think, well, it's, I, if nothing's happening, I can be strong. Well, yes, anybody can be strong when nothing's happening. The hard thing is to be strong and courageous when the whole world seems to be against you. When the enemy is against you, then it's like, okay, now are you going to be strong or courageous? And here is Hezekiah saying, I know this army's coming, I know this army's coming, but I want you to be strong and courageous. And I like what he said at the very second part of that, for there be more with us than with him. Now, he's going to explain it in the next verse, but can you imagine you're the people in Jerusalem and maybe you've seen this horde of enemy out there and you're going, uh, Hezekiah, have you by any chance counted those people out there? Uh, we've got 100,000 people in here, mostly, mostly women and children, maybe 200,000, 185,000 out there, uh, Hezekiah, you know, you're kind of losing it. But he didn't give him much time to think about that. Because he very quickly explains it. For with him is the arm of flesh. He has numeric numbers. He, by physical looks, he is strong. And he goes, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. I love that. 
the more we really truly believe that statement, the Lord is with us to fight our battles, the easier it is to stay strong and courageous. Because it doesn't matter. God is on our side. You know, if God is on our side and he is as his children, then we have a majority. We have an unbeatable combination when God is on our side. The worst that can happen is we almost die. If we die, we get to go home, and that's the best thing that can happen to us. And the worst thing that can happen is we get beat up and have to go through it all again. And this is what he's saying. God is here. You know, he has the arm of flesh. He looks like he's got everything, but we have God on our side. Now, this is the first test of his people that have gone on revival. They've been following God. They've been destroying idols. They've been, been worshiping God. They've been giving, giving their tithes and offerings. And now, here's the first big test. Sennacherib is here to destroy them, and to destroy Jerusalem, destroy their people. Now comes the question, will you trust in the God that you have been following? And they haven't been following long. You know, they have not been following long, and now here comes this big test. Are we going to trust God? And then we look at this, and the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah. They're going, okay, God is on our side. And can you imagine how much confidence Hezekiah had to be able to, you know, give out to the people? He had to have been very charismatic at this point, saying, you know, I know there's a large army marching on us, but God is on our side. He's, you know, we've done everything we can. We're going to trust God, and God is, our, is who we are. And they trusted and rested in what he said. I love this picture. This is very uh, showing a lot of confidence from Hezekiah and a lot of confidence from the people because the people are willing to say, all right, we don't, we don't see any chance here. Nobody has defeated Sennacherib and the, and the Assyrian army, but we're going to trust that God is stronger than they are. And this is a beautiful statement, beautiful picture of, of what's coming up. And this is for us. Do we trust, when God is on our side, do we trust to, to be able to be strong and courageous and stand for him? You know, whether I lose my job, whether I die, whether I get thrown into prison, whether, you know, whatever it might be, Am I going to stand with God and, and honor him? And this is something for us in America, we haven't had to do this very much. Most of the world have to stand for God and maybe lose their life if they stand for God. Maybe have their property burnt and destroyed you know, and then lose their life if they keep going. We in America have not had these problems, but I think it's coming that we will have to learn to stand with God in hard times. And it may start out with simply losing your jobs, losing some freedoms, but I think it very quickly will turn into martyrdom, or quickly, relative, <laughs> relatively quick, years down the road possibly. Maybe as fast as our country's gone downhill, it might be tomorrow. You know, who knows? I mean, we're, we're seeing drastic changes in our country. You know, we're seeing a government that is no longer being run by democracy, but being being run by uh, presidents just writing executive orders. You know, and they've always been doing that with a small amount, but now they're writing executive orders on everything. 
you didn't, I didn't get my way in Congress, so I'm going to write an executive order. And you know these executive orders are supposed to be short term, but most of them have not been short term. They're only supposed to be a couple months to tide things over while Congress makes a makes a decision, and that's not what's happening in the in our in our day. And we're seeing all kinds of trying to rule by presidential power. Our presidents for now quite a while have all thought that they were kings, not presidents, elected presidents. Um, so who knows what can change? We can see things changing drastically. Now we're seeing social media that says if you say anything that's not part of what the government's saying, you can't say it. We're seeing news media that pretty much agrees with the same thing. If it's not what the government's saying, we can't say anything different. And this is going to all lead into Orwellian groupthink, um, where everybody just thinks the same, and if they don't, they're put into they're put into education camps to be learning to learn to think the way everybody else thinks. And we're seeing all of that being developed. Here, the people said, we are going to stand with God, and they rested in what Hezekiah said. And I love that. These are new believers for all practical purposes. They've been Jews for a long time, but they've only now started worshiping in the temple and, and offering sacrifices and being obedient to the Sabbath and the Passover and giving their tithes and offerings. And now comes their big chance. They could have all said, ah, uh-uh, nope, this isn't worth it. I'm going to go back and worship the other gods. But they rested in what was being done. The change that had happened really is a big change in their life. Verse 9. After this did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, send his servants to Jerusalem, but he himself laid siege against Lachish and all his power with him unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah that were in at Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Wherein do you trust that you abide in the, in the siege of Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give over Give over yourselves to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God shall deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria. Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense upon it? Know you not that I have, that I and my fathers have, what I and my fathers have done to all the people of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands anyways able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among the gods of, the land, of those nations that my father utterly destroyed that could deliver his people out of my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you out of my hand? Now therefore let not Hezekiah deceive you nor persuade you on this matter. Neither yet believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of my hand and out of the hand of my fathers, how much less shall your God deliver you out of, the, out of my hand? And his servants spoke more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote also letters to rail on the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of, those, of the nations of other lands have not delivered the, their people out of my hand, so shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of my hand. Then they cried with a loud voice in the Jews' speech unto the people of Jerusalem that were on the wall to affright them and to trouble them that they might take this city. We're going to stop there. So here is the words of Sennacherib. These are proud words. (laughs) These are very arrogant. 
And you note that he's not just attacking the people, not just attacking the king. He is attacking God. And, you know, his bold words. And so Sennacherib's busy elsewhere at Lachish, which is up toward the north. But he sends his, his servants to make this speech for him. And verse 10 says, you know, wherefore do you trust? What are you trusting in? You know, they already know the answer. They're going to trust in their God. Um, Israel has been known to trust in their God. I think he's probably even aware of the history of the battles of their God because this is something that has been a running concourse all the way through that people remember what God did. They remember what he did to Egypt. He remembers what they did to Moab. They remember what he did to Ammon. They remember what they did to Canaan and and Gath and all these places, you know, on the conquering of them and how they overwon and how there were mysterious victories where the where the River Jordan uh, was split in half and they walked across on dry land. They remember, the stories were still out there about a God who could open the Red Sea. You know, they remember these stories. They remember the stories that during the Battle of Joshua where hailstones the size, you know, uh, 150 pound hailstones come down and killed more enemies than they did. They, they remember the stories of the wasps driving the enemies away. So his statement is pretty bold. You know, he goes, I don't care about these old stories. They're old stories. They're probably wives' tales. They're myths, you know, is what, is what he's basically coming down to. And he says, what are you trusting in? That you abide the siege of Jerusalem. Now, this is something that is well known to the people. A siege is not a fun thing to go through. You're going to get hungry. It's much like if you were in the Navy, in the Navy back in the days of the wooden ships and you were out at sea and couldn't get into supplies and maybe uh, something, you know, the, the food source got contaminated or broken down or you were out longer than you thought you were going to be. And all of a sudden you went on rations. And usually it was like half rations to start with. And then it might go down to, you know, quarter rations and you were barely eating and yet you had to work. And that was a very dangerous time in the ship because people got upset you know, that they weren't eating right and got sick because they weren't eating right. This is what he's saying. You're, you're, going, to be see, you're going to be in siege here in Jerusalem. You're all going to get sick. And we read all through here, you know, in one in in. One of the other sessions, it says that it got so bad in Jerusalem that they were selling pigeon dung for a huge amount of money. All right, uh, they were selling a donkey's head for a huge amount of money, and nobody ate the donkey's head. All right, but he said you know, this is how bad things got. Great temptation of are we going to trust God when everything looks bad? And this is something we always have to remember. God steps in when he's ready. Usually when he's ready to step in is long after when we would like to see him step in. God, you know, uh, I really need this uh, money. I really need this job. I really need this victory. I really need this vehicle, whatever it might be. And God always waits to the last moment to meet to meet our need. Why? Because he wants to get the credit for what happens. Because if we got it too soon, we're going, oh, look how good things worked. I, I got the money to pay my, my utilities and my, and my rent, and I got, it three, I got it three weeks ago, so look, look how wonderful everything is. But when I get it just when I need it, 
It's like, okay, God, thank you. You, you provided. Oh, God, you know, we just used the last of our food and you gave us, you gave us food. So we see this process going on and God is, God is there with them and he's going to it. And verse 11 says, does not Hezekiah persuade you to give over yourselves to die by famine and thirst? So in other words, you know, why are you following Hezekiah? All you're going to do is get hungry and thirsty as you sit in your city starving and without drink. Now, he'd stopped up the water, so he's got plenty of water. He's got plenty of water. Jerusalem always had plenty of water, but food does become a big deal, especially if, I don't know how many people, but let's say, let's say there was only 50,000 or 100,000 in the, in the city. It takes a lot of food to feed, let's, let's make it 50,000. It takes a lot of food to feed 50,000 people for a year. Yeah, you know, that's a lot of food. Even if you ration it, it's a lot of food that's needed to feed them. And this is what they're saying. You know, is Hezekiah, don't you understand what Hezekiah's, you know, telling you to do? You're going to get hungry. You're going to get thirsty. Satan's speaking out. You know, if you obey God, everything's going to fall apart. You know, God's not going to take care of you. He's not going to work on time, and you're just going to lose everything. And believe me, I've I've had those things whispered in my ears at times. You know, you're, you know, look at this. It's not, it's not working. You're following God, and it is not working. This is what's coming in from from Shennacherib to, to the people. Don't you follow him? He's going to just start. You know, you're going to be starving if you follow him, and you're going to die by famine and thirst. And they're saying, and you're going to be saying, the Lord our God shall deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria. So they already know what they're going to be saying. Our God's going to deliver us. And they've got a plan for this answer. You know, if somebody is actually laying out an argument, you usually think, if you're good at giving the reasons, you think about what the answers are going to be back to you so that you can then answer those, answer those statements. And so they're going, yeah, you're going to say, our God will deliver us. You're trusting in your God. And their answer to that is... Um, Verse 12, has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altar and commanded Judah and Jerusalem saying, you shall worship before one altar and burn incense upon it. Here is their first big mistake in their, in their, in their discussions. What altars had been destroyed? The altars to the other gods. Now, from their perspective, you know, they're, they're multi-gods and, you know, you worship all the gods. So they don't understand that what happened is that God said destroy all the altars except for my altar and this is their first time that they don't really understand what's going on they're going <laughs> you know look what hezekiah did he made it so you can only worship in one place and he took away all the other altars to god they didn't realize that those altars weren't for god they were for gods plural that weren't god and they don't understand that they're going this doesn't make any sense why would you make people all worship at one place but that is what God has said all the way back in, in the Pentateuch. You shall worship me in the place that I have appointed. And that originally was the tabernacle, and then it became the temple in Jerusalem. And that is where they were to worship God. That's where they were to place their sacrifices and make their sacrifices. This is why the Jewish people, the Orthodox Jewish people to this day are waiting for a temple to be built so they can go back and give God the sacrifices that it takes to be able to worship him. 
because they already know they've got problems. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. They know that without the shedding of blood on Yom Kippur, there's no sin covered for the year. Uh, they're, they're struggling with all of this. Now, they have redefined it that good works will get you to heaven. You don't have, because we don't have a place to sacrifice, do all kinds of good works. But they know in their deep part of their heart that that is not matching what God has said. And that bothers them. And so here, the speaker for Sennacherib does not understand what has been happening. All they know is, you know, maybe there's been grumping, you know, grumbling all over the all over the land. Is there, you know, that Hezekiah destroyed our destroyed our altars? Now look what's happening. We're being conquered. Who knows why they're thinking this way? I don't know. Maybe he was watching them. Maybe he's had spies in their land for a long time. We don't know. Uh, but this is something they don't get right. He's, he's destroyed the altars of his God. So do you all have to worship in Jerusalem? You know, and they're not understanding that that's not what was destroyed. So this is their first big mistake. Uh, verse 13 says, Know you not that what I and my fathers have done to all the people of other lands? Were the gods of those nations of those lands then anyways able to deliver their lands out of my hand? So here is his first big attack. Now he's not just attacking the people in, in Hezekiah. He's attacking God. Because you're depending, on, you're depending on your God. There has not been any God that can stop us from taking over. You know, and, they're, and they're confident. You know, they've, they've been victorious everywhere they go. And they're going, you know, you guys are trusting in your God? We've wiped out, we've wiped out uh, the northern kingdom and they're supposed to have the same God you have. We've wiped out the, the places north of us. You know, we, everywhere we go, we, we destroy those nations and their gods are not able to save them. What is he saying in one sense? is He's either extremely arrogant and saying, I can beat anybody or my God and I can beat, beat anybody because we're going to find out that he worships idols as well. So basically he's saying, nobody's stopping us. Nobody is stopping us. And this was a big deal back in those days. Our God is stronger than your God. You know, um, and so he's going, you guys are trusting God, and our God has given us victory everywhere we've been. Uh, we read in, in uh, Joshua, one very interesting statement that's always struck me. He goes, they defeated the, the men in the mountains because... The, their God is stronger than the God of the mountains, but we are the, we have the God of the valley. They can't defeat our God. And that, you know, and that was the way people thought. Might be able to beat that God, but our God is strong. And yet we watched that God, you know, big G God, is able to do anything and, and, and because he's the creator. And all these other false gods aren't able to do anything, and it really is the people that make it happen. And so here they're starting to make their attack on God. No, nobody's been able to stop us. We're going we're gonna to run right over, right over you all. Um, were the gods of those nations in any way able to deliver their lands from my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver the people out of my hand that your God should be able to deliver you out of my hand? He said... I beat up everybody. You know, I have just defeated every. There is no God that can stand. And I don't know, you know, he never mentions his God. We do see at the end of the chapter that he worshiped, you know, he worshiped a God. But he's almost kind of saying, 
you know, I'm a god and I am so strong, I'm not even worried about any of the gods. And that wouldn't be too far-fetched from most of those people during those days. Many of their rulers and kings thought of themselves as gods, or at least got the people to think of themselves as gods. So he could be saying, I am so strong, nobody can defeat me. You know, I, I am a god and nobody's going to beat me. Nobody's going to be able to defeat me and don't even trust in your god. This is, now notice, this is being said outside the walls, but there, we're said that they're speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, whatever language, so that the people on the wall can hear. All right? This is not geared toward Hezekiah. Hezekiah has been leading this revival. He would be hard to shake his faith. But the people are fairly new in, in following God. And this all is being said in their hearing to try to shake them up. And their hope is to do just what probably did happen. You know, you're part of the gate, gate crew and then you're going, you're saying, well, what are they be saying? Oh, this is what they were saying. And all of a sudden that would spread like wildfire, this, this whole statements of what was being said at the wall. All right, what is, he's challenging God. Is our God strong enough to do it? And you can hear the, you know, the, the questioning in their mind if they're, then we would have done the same thing. You know, well, he's coming. Can we, can we stand up against him? Can God stand up? They're, they're spitting in God's face. Do, is our God strong enough to, to defend us? Because remember, up until this point, they have not been worshiping God. The stories of the Exodus, the stories of Joshua, the stories of King David, the stories of, of Solomon, those are all old stories to them. They have not seen God moving, and they say the same thing that we hear today. Where is the God that did, did all these miracles? Why don't we see the miracles? Well, mostly because we're not ready to accept or believe the miracles. All right, Because we're not ready to accept or believe the miracles, God does not do miracles. But even beyond that, God does miracles a lot all the time if we're looking for them. And we can see his miracles and watch what he does. And this is what Hezekiah's answer would be. This is what the Levites should be saying. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. What did Moses say when the people were complaining? They'd left, left Egypt. They, they were in a, in a valley. Pharaoh was coming down that valley. They couldn't go up the hills on either side. And there was the, Dead sea, the Red Sea on the other side of them. And he said, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. He said, the Egyptians that you see today, you will not see again. And you're, lo and you're looking at it like, we can't beat them. You know, there, there's an army with chariots and, and they are the number one army in the world. And, you know, we have no place to run. They're going to they're gonna run over us and, and defeat us in a heartbeat. And then God goes and stands between the people in Egypt. And then he dries up the Red Sea so that they can walk across the Red Sea. You know, and show his power. And this is our God. Our God takes us when we're in a situation where there is no hope. If we just trust him and say, I am still going to trust God, he will move. And this is very important. This is what's going on here. This says, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust in all these things that, that is going on? And it says, and the servant spoke more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. So they continued. And he kind of just did a brief, quick view that they challenged God. They challenged Hezekiah. 
and they're doing this in the, at the gate. And then it says, verse 7, And he wrote also letters to rail on the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the God of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people out of my hand, so shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of my hand. And I love this word, to rail against God. His attack isn't just on Hezekiah. Now, we're not told here, but in Isaiah we're told that Hezekiah takes the scrolls that are being written and puts them out before God in the temple and prays. And says, God, and literally he says, God, look at what they're saying about you. He's not saying, look what they're saying about me and, and your people, but God, look at what they are saying about you. Now, that's quite a challenge. God, are you going to let them say these things against you and not step in? And sometimes I look about what's going on in our world and the attacks against God, and I look at what's happening around the world, and I really do believe that God is stepping in and saying, oh, you want a little bit of taste of my power? Let's have a famine here. Let's have no rain here. Let's have an earthquake here. Let's have some fires here. Let's have some wars. You, you, don't, you don't believe in me? You don't trust in me? Let, let me just put a little finger upon you. And nobody recognizes it as what it is. As what it is. God did those things all through the scriptures. Why would he not do them today? As people are railing at him and, and putting their fist up in his face and saying, you're not, you're not going to control me. You're not going to have any power over me. God is stepping in. And it will only intensify. You know, if we don't have a revival, it'll keep intensifying until we have the rapture and the seven years of tribulation to really intensify it. But there are going to be some serious consequences. Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for, th for three years. Uh, you know, Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume, a, consume an offering. Uh, we see over and over again what God will do to bring his power before people. They are challenging God. They are saying, who is this God that you worship? You guys think you're, you're you think your God is special enough? He's, he's bigger than the rest of these gods? And again, remember, these guys are newly following God for all practical purposes. Yes, they've been Jews for born Jews, following Jews, but they really have just had a revival. Even if it's a couple years, they're just still fairly new and their beliefs, and all of a sudden, here's somebody challenging their God. Here's somebody challenging their trust in their God. This is a big deal. This is a big point where anything could happen uh, as they go forward on this. And it says in verse 18, And they cried in it with a loud voice in the Jews' speech unto the people of Jerusalem that were on the wall to, to affright or terrify them, and to trouble them or dismay them that they might take the city. Their goal, let's get the defenders of the city totally afraid. And that's why they were speaking in Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever tongue they were using at this point in time. They wanted to make people afraid. They're going, well, you guys all believe Jeremiah, of Hezekiah and, and Isaiah? Yeah, you guys go ahead, but you know, we have conquered every, every god up until now. They don't realize they're talking to a people of the, of the one God who have made a decision to follow him and have their faith and trust in him 
and they know at this point, I hope they know their, their history. They, they have celebrated Passover, which is the, the release of the people of Israel. And during, the, during that, they tell the story of the Exodus and, the, and how they got out of Egypt. So they have just celebrated that God defeated Egypt, who was a great nation at the time that they were defeated by God. And so in the back of their mind is, will God do it again? Will God step up and deliver us, his people? We're his people. He's claimed us, and now we've turned our hearts to him. We've been offering sacrifices, and we have given burnt offerings. We're, we're totally devoted to him. What will our God do? And there's probably some question, is our God strong enough to defeat <laughs> this enemy who has been undefeated everywhere he's gone? Uh, Verse 20, and for this cause, Hezekiah king and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried unto heaven. I love this. They, were, they went right to God and said, God, this is, this is for you. This is your battle, God. We can't, we can't win against this large army. He has got us in a, between a rock and a hard place. He has defeated every God. It's time for you now, God, to stand up and show them who is God. And this is a very big deal. This is, you know, this this is their prayer. God, stand up and show who you are. And this might be our prayer sometime in the future. God, stand up and show them who is God. As people start making the, the case that there is no God and that they want to be defeated. Verse 21, and when the Lord sent and the Lord sent an angel which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and the captains of the camp of the king of, Israel, of Syria. So he returned with shame, shame of face to his own land. And when he was come into the house of his God, they that came forth of his own bowels slew him with the sword. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from, Assyria, and from the hand of, the other, of all other and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts unto the Lord to Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was magnified in the sight of all nations from then, thenceforth. All right. They prayed, and God stepped in. And again, we're not told here, but if you want to read the rest of the story, uh, read Second Kings 19 uh, and Isaiah 38, and you'll find out that there were 185,000 Assyrians killed in one night by the angel of the Lord. 185,000. Oh, Isaiah uh, 38. Killed the entire army. And their, and their captain. Somehow Sennacherib didn't, was not in there. He was, he was in that other battle that was talking about Lekish. Uh, he had split his army. He still had 185,000 men attacking Jerusalem, and he still had enough armies to uh, men to besiege another another city. And so he loses his army. This is a big deal. You know, you you go over there, and all of a sudden, your entire army that was besieging Jerusalem is dead. And in Kings, we read about how the lepers went out. They were stuck outside the city, and they went, and they found the food, and uh, the, same the same story. And then they go back and say, hey, you know, uh, the army out here is dead. 
there's nobody out here. Come out here and take care of it. And killed him. No, that was a different story. Oh, oh, that was a different. Oh. Yeah, we we have several places where this happens. Oh, this type yeah, of thing happens. We did have the one where people heard noises and attacked each other and ran away and attacking each other. But this one is God stepping in. The angel of the Lord came and killed the enemy. And this is something that is very powerful. And it says that. And so Sennacherib returned with shame of face to his own land. All right. Uh, these, these people of Judah just killed off all my, all my army. And I, I'm sure he thought they did somehow. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that he attributed it to their God. But even if he did, uh, one of the gods finally stood up against me and won. All right. So he's going in and saying, I have been defeated. And so he returns back to his land. And nothing is worse for, for a king than to go back in defeat. All right? Uh, because people look at him and say, what was wrong? How did you lose that battle? And when you lose a battle, you appear to be weak. And so Sennacherib goes in, and he's worshiping before his god. And it says that his own children killed him while he was worshiping all right it's more clear it's more clear in, in second kings that he went into the temple and his sons killed him you know uh, maybe they thought he was weak at that point and now's our chance to take over i don't know what their thinking was because nobody really explains it he just says his own kids went in and killed him second kings 19 19 uh so now sennacherib's dead Assyria, this is the end of Assyria's great move. Before long, the country that is going to rise up is going to be Babylon. And Babylon is going to be the next big kingdom and that starts sweeping. First they attack the Assyrians and win everything, and then they're going to eventually be the one that's used to punish the southern kingdom for their, for their sins. Uh, but this is the end of Sennacherib. Uh, and all of a sudden, Hezekiah looks like a hero. Now, all he did was pray, but Sennacherib and the Assyrians are now defeated. And who gets the credit? The king of Judah. And this is something that is really very interesting because when we stand up for God and do something great for God, you know, we need to be very careful that we point to God and say, it's God who did it, but who gets the credit as far as the world's concerned? Usually us. Well, how did you, how did you get this great big evangelism activity? Well, it was this program that we did. You know, instead of it was the program that God gave us, it's, it's our program that we did. Let us tell you about our you know, you know, program. Matter of fact, we'll sell you our program, which is usually what happens. Uh, and people forget that it is God's. And that God did it, and quit, and don't point to God. And it says that He was exalted amongst the lands, and people gave Him reverence and, and attention. Uh, and so He is exalted, and they bring gifts to Him. You got rid of our, you got rid of our enemy. You delivered us. The enemy is gone. Here, have some gifts. And He gained a lot of wealth during this period of time. So this is a big deal on it. All right, now we get toward the end of his life. 
In those days, Hezekiah was sick to death and prayed unto the Lord and spoken to him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah rendered not according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up, therefore, and therefore, the, therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So here we have, and this is just a real short story, but again, if you want to read the complete story, look at uh, 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 20 and Isaiah chapter 38. Hezekiah got sick to the point of death. God told Isaiah, go tell Hezekiah to get his house in order because he's going to die. Isaiah is leaving the king's room, gets to the court, and during this period, Hezekiah cries out to God and says, God, you know, I've taken care of you. I've done all that you've wanted, and, you know, I've done all these things for you. Would you please give me a longer life? And Isaiah is in the middle of the court, and God says, turn around and tell, tell Hezekiah his prayer is answered. All right? And then we have a whole long story in the, in the other one where he says, ask a sign, you know, ask for a sign. And he says, well, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to tempt God. Hezekiah says, I don't want to tempt God. You know, he really did. But, you know, and he goes, okay, do you, and Isaiah says, do you want the sun to go forward 10 degrees or backwards 10 degrees? And Hezekiah says, well, it's no big deal for it to go forward. All you got to do is wait for 15 minutes and it'll, it'll go forward 10 degrees, make it go backwards. And God moved it backwards 10 degrees. And God said, you are going to be given an extra 15 years. And it says that originally, uh, Hezekiah's heart was proud. You know, you know, maybe he felt, well, I won, I won against God and he, he, he relented to me. But he finally humbled himself. But he gets 15 extra years to be king because of his prayer. Now, we're going to read to the end of this chapter and find out this is one of those places where you want to say, be careful what you pray for because it might just get answered. He got an answer to this prayer and it hurt the people of Israel in a very big, or Judah, in a very big way as we go in there. Um, verse 27, And Hezekiah did exceeding, had exceedingly much riches and honor and made himself treasures of silver and gold and precious stones and for spices and for shields and for all manner of pleasant jewels, storehouses also for the increase of corn and wine and oil and stalls for all manner of beasts and, and uh, sheep, sheep uh, houses for his flocks. Moreover, he provided himself cities and professions and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance for God had given him substance very much. So here we see is when he humbled himself, God gave him blessings. He had brought a great revival and he had all kinds of wealth. And I think that he started taking pride in his wealth. Look at all that I have got. And started building all kinds of storehouses for them. And just built barns, built you know, uh, sheepfolds, uh, all kinds of stalls for the animals. And then verse 30 says, This same Hezekiah also stopped up the wa upper water courses of Gion and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all of his works. So here we see that Hezekiah 
is doing things and everything he does, God says, is prosperous. This is also a time when you need to be very careful. When everything seems to be going good for you, it is easy to trust in your own material wealth, your own blessings, and stop trusting God. And we need to be very careful. I've seen more people turn away from God when they are materially blessed than when they suffer. And, you know, and I've seen it over and over. They get their, get their little play toys, they get their boats, their summer houses, their beach houses, their, their motorbikes, and then because they need to use them, they start missing church, they start not, not spending time with God, and slowly drift away. It is so easy to drift away from God when you're not dependent on Him. So sometimes the blessings that we think we want are not all that great a thing for us. And so we're seeing here, he is greatly, greatly uh, blessed. And verse 31 says, How be it in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, the princes of Babylon who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the, in the land, God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. Now this is kind of an interesting statement. Again, in the other, in other books we hear the full story. Ambassadors came from Babylon to see the blessings of God. And it sounds like they really wanted to see the blessings of God. And in his pride, he shows them all of his wealth, all of his weapons, all of his armories, all, all that's going on. And Isaiah comes to him and goes, what did they say that you showed them everything? What is wrong with you? You know, because Hezekiah is, uh, Isaiah is seeing these guys not as ambassadors, but as spies. How can we beat this guy? You know, what does he have that we can beat? And he shows them everything. That would be like the army going, oh, and here's our silos for our missiles, and here's where all of our missile subs are, and this is where, our, where we've got all of our people stationed, and this is where our money is stored, and this is where our food is stored. And, you know, by the way, this is where this army is and this group is and this is where our battle groups are. This is what he was doing. He was so proud of what he was happening. And part of it was Babylon was a long ways around. There was a long, a lot of desert between them and Babylon. They'd have to go through Assyria and come back around. So we have all of this going on. And he greatly sins in showing this to the, to the people. Um, then in verse 32, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the chiefest of the, of the sepulchers of the sons of David and, and all Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. All right, so he gets great honors. Everybody's happy with him. He's been a great leader, a godly leader. They give him the greatest funeral in the best place. And it says, Manasseh, his son, reigned. Now, two things we're going to just mention of this because it's going into the next study. But Manasseh is one of the worst kings that Judah ever had. Manasseh starts reigning when he's 12 years old. He was born during the extra time that Hezekiah was given. Hezekiah was given 15 more years of life. Manasseh was born three years into that. 
what happened to his brothers or anything else that should have been, should have been king before him, or you don't know. But Manasseh, the worst king of Judah, was born during that blessing of extra 15 years to Hezekiah. And the people of Israel are going, of Judah are going to suffer. The land is going to suffer. And everything about it is going to be bad because he was born during that period of time that he, Hezekiah begged for. So it's great, again, a great picture of be careful what you ask God for. He might just answer it. And that answer might not be what's good for you. So sometimes we just need to say, God, okay, you said it's time to go home. I want to go home. Thank you. Let's go. Uh, if Hezekiah had said that, Manasseh would never have been born and somebody else would have been king. Who knows? I don't know what the other, who, who else was out there, but there would have been another, another uh, prince that came in, into power. But because of that prayer being answered, they're going to go into one of the most wicked kings that Judah ever saw. And it was not a good time for them. And all because of an answered prayer that should not have been answered. First prayer should have been answered. God, these, they're challenging you to the face. God, you said, I'm going to die. I, you know, hey, I've done so much for you. Let me live another 15 years. Let me live longer. They didn't say 15. And the answer to that prayer got the entire nation damaged. So, Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to see what you would want us to see from all of this. Help us to learn to trust you in all things, no matter what seems to be coming our way. Help us learn to trust you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.